and welcome to Under the Hood, a brand new podcast from 11FS and Synapse. We're lifting the lid on banking infrastructure and taking you deep into the technology that's disrupting traditional models, shaking up the system, and improving the financial lives of customers around the world. Welcome to episode five of Under the Hood. I'm Simon Taylor, co-founder and head of ventures here at 11FS, and I'm joined by my co-host, Sankit, the CEO of Synapse. How are you doing, Sankit? I'm good, Simon. How are you? Yeah, really, really well, thank you. Um, Great show today. I'm excited for this one. Um, Do you just want to remind everybody what Synapse does before we uh, get into this one? Yeah, for sure. Synapse is a US-based banking as a service and lending as a service provider. Uh, So what that really means is if you're a developer who wants to launch feature-rich deposit and lending products, we're by far the fastest way to go to market. Um, In our last show, of course, we looked at financial crime and how banks can use new technology to better protect themselves, their customers, and others. And this week, we're looking at all things lending and credit scores, how new fintechs, ideas, and technology are coming through to shake up the lending area, and how new solutions can really help customers. Uh, We want to dive deeper in this, so we have got some incredible guests. Um, Joining us is uh, Melanie Alperti, who is head of product at Nova Credit. Thanks for joining us. Can you uh, remind our listeners about Nova Credit? credit um, and who you are as well. Yeah, absolutely. So glad to be here, Simon. Um, So I lead the product team at Nova Credit. And in a nutshell, we do cross-border credit reporting. Um, So typically when immigrants move to the U.S., uh, they might need certain credit products, but they have no credit score. And unfortunately, without a credit history, you can't get a product. And without a product, you can't build credit history. Um, So we make it possible to bring your foreign credit score with you. Um, And prior to Nova, I also worked at Affirm and Venmo and American Express. Um, So lots of fintech lending experience. Lots of lending experience. And uh, joining Melanie, we're super happy to be joined by Tucker Haas, who is CEO and co-founder of Quo. Did I say that right? Yep. How's it going? Can you tell everybody about Quo? Definitely. Yeah. So thanks so much for having me. Um, At Quo, we really are focused on helping you achieve your financial goals by giving you a clear action plan, best-in-class tools, and relevant rewards. And you know, the heart of our platform is our tools. So we have things like unique automated budgeting, but of course, lending as well, where we offer emergency and personal loans to help making achieving those goals even easier. Well, let's hope we can help customers get closer to those goals. Um, Sanke, let's jump into this. Set the scene for me a little bit. Um, typically, you know, historically, lending was the domain of licensed banks for as long as time can uh, can remember, um, as long as anybody can remember, I suppose, um, with new players emerging all the time. Why is this become an area that's ripe for disruption now? What's needed to change and what is changing? Yeah, uh, technically time can remember, but that's that's a physics podcast probably. Um, um, about lending, uh, lending is actually not the most surprising next iteration for fintechs. Like from the beginning of kind of like disruption of financial technologies generally, we start with payments where we were just trying to do some functions to be able to help consumers uh, uh, daily financial experience. Then we dove into deposit accounts, in some cases investing, if you look at Robinhood. Um, pretty much the same theme, trying to bring more enhanced, intelligent, and easy-to-use tools to customers. Um, and long behold, the same thing's happening with lending now. Uh, um, and again, the interesting theme in all of this is it's not that lending in itself is getting disrupted. There are aspects of that as well, for sure. But the most interesting part is that lending is getting embedded into applications that by and large have uh, the mission to just improve the financial lives for consumers and businesses. Um, So I think that is probably 
quite kind of ripe for disruption and kind of like an area of expertise for folks that love dealing with data and love dealing with building really good experiences. Thus, fintech companies generally. Interesting, isn't it? How how much that's changed, um, Mel? I mean, given your background, you've worked in a few places that are pretty good with data. Like, how how does how's that realistically changed? And can you set the scene of like how lending was done and how it looks different uh, when it's starting to get embedded? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so I think if you think about a traditional FICO score in lending, it, it's very one size fits all. And I'd like to think we're all a little bit more than just our FICO scores. Um, so the nice thing about an embedded model and about fintech generally is that you can really have a deep focus on a specific consumer segment or product or use case. And then you can understand how to do that really well and understand what data is important for that. Um, so obviously at Nova Credit, we focus on immigrants. And one of the things that attracted me to the company initially was in all of my prior roles, I struggled with being able to serve the immigrant population because we didn't have the right data for them and they faced this problem. But we were we were more focused on a general population. So we never really got to put the rigor into solving this problem really well. Um, so at Nova, by doubling down on this population, we can basically solve it, become experts, and then deliver that service to other lenders. And I think you see that in D2C models as well. So you see how like SoFi focused on the Henry segment, got really good at using the right data to underwrite them. There's also like the chimes of the world. I think that they probably have lending on the horizon and um, the modern payday lenders of like Earnings and Dave's. And I think what they bring to the table is really being able to think about what data best serves a specific consumer segment and bring that into the product. I like that. And Tucker, maybe build on that for me. What are these new lenders offer that the traditional banks can't? I think where Mel was going there was kind of really serving the underserved. Is that it? Or are there other things they can do with the data as well? Definitely. You know, I think that Mel's absolutely right that, you know, being able to go after these targeted niches is something that these fintech players can do that you know, banks just don't want to invest the time to underwrite properly, don't have the data to underwrite properly. And so I think that that is certainly a big advantage that fintech players have. But I think another very large one is that they also can offer very different kinds of products and loan sizes that banks have traditionally shied from, whether that's alternative loans uh, or, you know, which is something that came from actually credit unions. And now a lot of fintech players are moving into, or even things like earned wage advances, as you mentioned with Dave, Earn and Chime, all those players offering that kind of product. Not something that is, yeah. I was going to say, Tucker, it's kind of interesting to me that the mega bank model always had, like, this is how we do lending. We look for this FICO score with these types of products, right. and this is what our customer looks like. And actually, as demographics have shifted, as the economy has shifted, that leaves more and more people behind. So the window that um, the mega banks can lend to is getting smaller and smaller and less profitable, which left more and more opportunity on the table for fintechs to come and make that make sense. But the way they did it was not the way the banks did it, they started actually looking at a niche segment and going, how do I how do I actually solve for you with data? How do I solve for you with by understanding who you are, your specific circumstances? And do, you know, with modern software engineering practices, modern um, kind of AI and machine learning, can I can I figure out what your actual risk is compared to some other folks? Sankit. Yeah, I think another interesting aspect of all of this, Simon, is like I it seems like in the future uh, this is going to be more so a, it's going to be a good relationship between traditional lenders and fintech lenders. Here's why. Compared to if you bank a deposit customer 
or uh, uh, help someone invest their capital um, into the stock market, you don't inherently make them more bankable. But if you lend to someone who hadn't been lent to before, you inherently can build their credit, thus supporting the traditional banking model and the traditional lending model. So um, unless fintechs kind of like garner some massive balance sheet over the course of the next five years, what's going to happen is people are going to make essentially end up improving their credits or or end up making a credit history for themselves and then graduate into mortgages and car loans and what have you that more traditional banks are used to doing. So in a way, fintechs are going to fuel uh, a larger portfolio uh, for for larger sized banks um, compared to kind of like eat their cake, if you may, for now. Mm. Tucker, you want to jump in there? Yeah, definitely. And I think that you know, what you're speaking to, Sanket, is that you know, FECO is this great um, you know, lagging indicator of risk, right? It's def- it's looking at this huge data set of the past of, you know, what has somebody done with credit and have they made payments and, and all of these different pieces. But one of the great things about fintech companies is their ability to use these alternative signals, whether that's cash flow coming from Plaid data, whether that's things coming from budgeting information, completely other kinds of third-party data sets, like, of course, Mel could speak to. That really enables you to have different kinds of indicators that augment FICO, but then ultimately feed back into it. And so while I think FICO is very, has a lots of issues, of course, that we've danced around here, it is still a very strong indicator and will continue to be so. It's really powerful, isn't it, Mel? Do you want to talk to some of those other areas of data that, that Tucker was hinting at there that, that can really help you get a better picture? Yeah, absolutely. So I think if you think about what's important to underwriting a consumer, it really breaks down to three main categories for me. Um, so the first is identity, um, which is like, is this person a real person? Is Are they who they say they are? Um, and that goes into kind of the overall fraud predictors. So there are tons of data sources out there that can help you better understand that, that I won't get too deep into. The second one is kind of what we've been talking about, which is a consumer's willingness to pay. And I totally agree with Tucker that FICO is actually a really good predictor of this as our traditional credit scores, um, because past payment performance is probably going to be the best indicator of how you will work uh, moving forward. Um, but the piece that I think is really interesting is um, the third, which is the ability to repay or affordability. And I think that has to do a lot with like, what is your current income? What is your outstanding debt? What is your financial picture like? And that's where alternative data sources like um, bank transaction data, which Tucker mentioned, can be really useful. Payroll data can be really interesting, trying to better understand all of your income and your inflows. Um, And then the the other set of data that falls more in the willingness to pay category that's alternative that is interesting is um, other types of obligations like your Netflix bill, your credit, um, utilities, telco, things like that. And so we're starting to see a lot more information that shows sort of like how predictable you are at making regular payments outside of a traditional loan or credit card. Yeah, that credit worthiness around your historic behavior. Are you somebody that typically pays your bills on time and therefore what's your propensity to pay this lender on time? There is a correlation there that's kind of interesting. Tucker, you guys use some AI to analyze some of those spending habits. Is this actively working for you? And what sort of indicators do you look for along those lines? Yeah, so it's a very interesting system because it is using a lot of those th- data that I was talking about, especially things like cash flow data. And what we found is that utilizing alternative signals like 
you know, a consumer's actual interaction with our application, how they're actually budgeting through our application is incredibly powerful because it really hits on that third piece, which is their ability to pay. Can you actually analyze somebody's spending history, be able to look at their transactions with Amazon, be able to look at how they're actually budgeting for food and utilize that to understand, do they have enough money to make bill payments? And that has worked out incredibly well for us. We've been able to predict risk at a, a very high degree and been able to reduce a lot of defaults because of it. Senka, if, if you're not a bank, how do you start offering loans and lending products? What, what routes to market do you really have for this kind of thing? I mean, um, obviously, a Mel or a Tucker with their expertise, um, it, it would be you know phenomenal to have inside your organization. But if you've not got them, is, is there somewhere else you start? Yeah. So there are about two aspects to being able to do lending, right? So the first aspect is, are you allowed to do lending? Um, so so if, you're, if you're not a bank, the first challenge you have to solve for is either partner with an existing lender, may it be a bank or a state-by-state state lender, or um, build a lending model that technically is not lending. So payroll-backed cash advances are an exception to lending. Uh, um, there are some arguments to P2P lending that are exceptions to lending. Um, then the second piece, which I think both Mel and Tucker did a really good job elaborating on, and I wish, like one thing that I wish people knew and don't know about lending but should know, is the fight is about just two things. The fight is about your debt-to-income ratio and your your willingness to pay. Uh, so how do you build uh, um, pretty much a model that takes you as further in into the front lines of understanding this data better than anybody else, makes you more and more valuable? Um, so those are two things. Can you lend? Or And if you can lend, how, how what model would you build that best predicts or curates the debt-to-income ratio plus uh, your propensity to pay? And my dog barked with that. So. Well, it, it seems like the dog really agrees that that's an important point. Um, Mel, is it worth unpacking like um, the some of the applications that we've seen coming from the likes of um, Chime and Brex? And we saw as well Square got its uh, its charter recently and intends to use it. What do you think that path looks like? Because um, Sanket talked about not having a charter and partnering with somebody that did, but we also see a lot of businesses then looking to get the charter and lend. So charters, unpack all of this for me. Yeah. Um, so ILC charters, I think, are really hot right now. Um, it feels like everyone's applying for them. Uh, I think it. the way that I think about it is that you typically want to like prove out that you're actually serving this uh, population today, um, put products in market, do some of the things that Sankit talked about, um, and then that actually makes a really great case for you to take the full leap in actually getting a bank charter. And I think a lot of the regulatory bodies have been super supportive of innovation from fintechs. And so um, there's a lot of documentation. There's a lot out there about how to go through that process. And I think it's um, just going to continue to keep happening. Yeah, we saw in, in the UK, um, Oak North is is one example of, a, of a, somebody that got a charter directly and then became an interesting lender. We also had a lot of peer-to-peer lenders, and, and we heard that come up. And, uh, of course, uh, Lending Club bought Radius Bank, so there's also the acquisition route to think about. Um, so, Tucker, as, as you sit back and look at this, how do you unpack sort of the different types of, of lenders here? There's non-banks, there's um, kind of the, the peer-to-peer lenders. What are the categories? do you think are out there and important? Yeah, so I think the non-banks uh, being especially can be split into two different big categories. There's ones that are, like Sankat mentioned, are getting an exception to the rule and able to lend without any kind of real regulation. There's also 
the lenders who are working with partners. So of course, that's somebody like us who works with the partners to be able to, to offer our loans. But there's also, I think, really interesting um, examples of banks that are actually offering those loans uh, somewhat directly through these distribution platforms. So you know, there's a lot of banks that are working with fintech players to actually offer those loans, whether that's through referrals, whether that's through um, an, a very direct relationship with uh, the partner bank. And I think that's a really important one to mention because it's also make, is the easiest and most flexible for those fintech players as well. You can focus on the things that make you very strong, which is your distribution and technology advantage. And the banks can focus on what makes them strong, which is solving those, uh, those issues around regulation and actually making sure that they can lend. I love that point about playing to people's strengths, um, and and that does seem to be sort of happening through market forces. Um, but the, the, as I spoke, speak to a lot of the banks, Mel, the thing that they're wondering is how do they play in the buy now pay later space? I think given your background, I'd be interested in um, where does buy now pay later fit in this picture because it kind of happens in a different space, but it's also the, a type of lending that in theory has been around for quite some time. Yeah, um, it's a really great question. And I think it's another example of what Sankit was talking about previously, which I think it's more about making the pie bigger than replacing spend um, or lending that's already happening. What I think is really interesting about buy now, pay later is that it actually can be a super efficient transaction. So if you think about a traditional credit card, which is usually the alternative to buy now, pay later, um, you sort of have like an, an unoptimized business model or situation where the consumer has their fixed cost of credit, which is their credit card APR, um, and the merchant has their fixed costs of acquisition, acquiring customers, accepting payments, et cetera. Um, but the cool thing about buy now, pay later is it really plays upon the idea that like merchants want to acquire more customers, merchants that have high value goods might be willing to pay more to acquire those customers. And that path, that um, cost can actually be passed back to the consumer in terms of things like 0% interest or reduced cost of credit. Um, so I think it's a really cool uh, business model from that respect that plays upon what traditional credit cards maybe could do better. Uh, the other thing about it that I end up thinking is pretty interesting is um, it's very specific. So if you think about a specific purchase financing, you know exactly what the person's buying. It's typically a shorter term obligation, which means it can be less capital intensive than if you're trying to underrate a consumer for a mortgage. Um, so there's a lot more flexibility in models like that. And I think you're also actually trying to starting to see the banks play in that space as well, either through partnership options, which we've talked about, or um, they have products like Amex's Pay It Planet, where you can make a purchase on your credit card and then afterwards select a payment plan. Um, so I think we're going to continue to see innovation along the purchase financing front um, and definitely see consumers continue to adopt those technologies. Yeah, it's been it's been massive as the pandemic hit, um, and without question, and it's really um, continuing to accelerate as people go towards their their IPOs and beyond. Uh, Sanka, if you're not a bank uh, with all of the kind of experience that a bank has, but you're offering loans, how can you, as a fintech or a non-bank, protect yourself against defaults and some of the risks that comes with being a lender? Yeah, I think the biggest thing is um, how we all talked about before. It's how good can you get at figuring out the customer's debt-to-income ratio. It's still not precise. You kind of have to use account aggregation. You can use some credit header data as well. So you can use a bunch of different things. But you really want to have a better understanding of how much the customer makes a month and how much do they already have as fixed obligations every month. Uh, Savings sometimes help as well. 
And then the second thing you want to know is how likely are they going to pay back? And this is after you've done identity verification, right? So we're kind of assuming that you've been able to slim that down and you're focused on customers that are who they say they are. Um, so those two are kind of like the biggest things. You have to just constantly iterate and improve upon that to be able to keep on reducing your overall loss overhead. Um, now, there are more financially elegant solutions as well. Um, you could you could go to the capital markets and essentially partner with providers that are willing to provide liquidity to you and also take on some of the risk, not offload all the risk to you. So you end up being kind of like joint owners into some of these loans. Um, another way to do the same thing is what Tucker was talking about, uh, be like Apple Card, just have Goldman Sachs or someone back and manage all of these loans in the portfolio. You focus on the technology in itself. Um, but we find more and more fintechs wanting to essentially turn this into a revenue opportunity, which happens by by play, like putting some kind of a financial stake themselves in there as well. So you're going to have to rely heavily on good data. So I like that point because it was building on what Mel was saying earlier about the the three areas of identity, creditworthiness, and affordability are your kind of levers to prevent defaults. But also behind that, you have your partner or the capital markets that can help you share that risk as well and, and fund your balance sheet and, and fund your front and back book to to really distribute that. And of course, the, these become trade-offs of like how much of the economics are you going to own um, versus how much risk you taking and you can you can kind of go as, as, as you move through it. Um, Tucker, I wonder about your thoughts on, on some of this sort of stuff. What have you learned in this process of, of kind of moving up the, uh, moving moving through the building, what you're building at Quote? Absolutely. I think you know, the biggest thing that we've learned is that these are very great principles, but they're hard to apply as, as a startup. You know, the especially thinking about something like capital markets and being able to work with those kinds of lenders to share that risk is is very difficult, uh, especially when you're trying to do something that's different or innovative. Uh, and I think that that is a very large wake up call that the capital markets need is that if they want to foster that innovation, they need to understand how to to handle that risk, work with partners rather than just borrower, and how you can actually make it possible for more fintech innovation to come in. Because right now, if you are going to go to Victory Park or what have you and try to get your first you know, 10, $100 million credit facility, there's going to be a lot of confidence associated with that. Your innovation is going to be very much limited and it's going to be very difficult to go through that iterative process unless you have a very active partner. Yeah, you've got a real sort of catch-22, which is you've got to, in order to use alternative data and target your niche, um, you're going to have to build a model, um, an AI model that can that can underwrite this specific type of risk. In order to do that, you need a volume of data to be able to do it. To get a volume of data, you need like the kind of the backing and the balance sheet. So Mel, how, how have you seen people get started with this sort of thing? Like, how do you square that? Is that just the art of being an entrepreneur and, and dealing with those challenges? Or is there, are there other things out there as well? Um, I think it it definitely continues to be a challenge for most companies. Um, and I totally agree with what Tucker was saying, especially with capital markets. Um, I think most lenders have gotten comfortable with using alternative data to supplement traditional credit data. But I think when you think about uh, the secondary markets, FICO is really a great way for them to normalize across many portfolios. And so I think it's really hard for them to move past that FICO score and start to understand different types of data. Um, so there are ways to experiment, like um, 
most fintechs will probably hold some loans on their balance sheet and be able to run experiments, um, play with their credit model, and then get more data on that and try and get their secondary markets or capital markets partners comfortable with that. Um, But it can be a pretty slow, time-intensive process. And so I think it's an area that we'll definitely have to speed up um, to continue to see innovation in this space. Sanket, what are your thoughts? Yeah, I think um, access to capital on non-traditional like lending products is tough. Um, the only way you can get access is by building some kind of a proof of concept portfolio and demonstrate how well does that portfolio perform over time. Now, what that really does is it restricts you to short-term loans because no fintech startup is going to keep a loan open on their books for five years and then see how it performs and then go to capital markets and get. So it's one of the more challenging things to solve for something even we think about a whole lot because we think we have straightforward solutions for short-term capital, which are like short-term loans, but that doesn't really translate into the long-term loans. Um, Yeah, so I think what's going to be a challenge uh, for fintechs over time is how can you build portfolios faster and then essentially get and attract more capital towards it. And for all intents and purposes, as far as I can see so far, that's going to happen with like non-traditional data, but for short-term loans, probably not something that would translate to long-term loans as easily. Interesting. Tucker, uh, is that what you're seeing as well? And and what are the um, kind of consumer impacts of some of this stuff? Like if only short-term credit's available and how do you see that playing out? Yeah, absolutely. I think Sanket's very much correct in that it is really only happening in short-term loans, whether that's buy now, pay later, um, peer-to-peer, or you know, emergency loans, personal loans like we offer. Uh, it's just how the data plays out. And you've, what the real consumer impact is, is that you look at some of these longer-term loans like a mortgage, and there is no real underwriting innovation happening there. There is no real changes into that risk understanding. And in my eye, if you're going to go after that space, it's about being a fintech player for the next 30 years. And how do you actually build up that data set and then you know, invest into it and be able to actually start issuing those mortgages with a new uh, underwriting set that you create? It's, uh, it's a long-term play if you really want to go after those because they're long-term assets. Yeah, you can tackle the bits of the process, I guess, sank it, but not the whole thing. There's like a very counterintuitive way to do this, um, but I haven't seen anyone do this yet. So here's the idea. The idea is uh, you build a portfolio of long time horizon investments that are highly risky uh, and put that into a private placement vehicle that only accredited investors can participate in. So think of it this way. If you think you have a strong conviction towards, I think, uh, uh, lower-cost housing in San Francisco uh, for, I don't know, like uh, um, hourly workers is going to be in the long-term benefit to the local economy, Uh, then you can technically build a private placement portfolio, get it approved by SEC with a lot of disclosures around this is a high-risk endeavor. And then you can attract a lot of evangelical kind of like private capital um, and then lend against that. Uh, I haven't seen anyone do that, but like that's the only way that I can think of where you could get capital quickly for something that is long time horizon versus short term. And I think what I'm hearing here is is like that little bit of skill and knowledge from a capital markets background can go a long way to solving consumer problems. Um, like a lot of this sounds very technical, especially if you're kind of new and learning all this stuff. But actually finding a co-founder or finding somebody with that experience is going to be so, so critical to solving those problems or working with partners that kind of un- understand this stuff is going to be crucial. Um, 
as Senkit's sort of speculating on out of the possible, um, I want to get to that in just a second. But but Mel, I want to ask you first, what, what do you think of the areas in, in credit and lending today, even though we're seeing a lot of innovation that are still fundamentally broken and, and, and how might we start to tackle some of those? Um, yeah, I think we've been talking around this one a lot, but definitely traditional credit reporting and credit scores. I think we've seen innovation where people are starting to use alternative data scores. Um, but the, the underlying element is that a credit score is still part of the picture. Um, and you end up having a ton of Americans that don't have a credit file at all or um, a very thin one that can't be used to be underwritten. So I think thinking about how we can get to a better 360-degree view of the consumer and start to make that the standard um, so that we don't have as many of these capital market conversations which is really important. Um, I think there's still a lot of opportunity to disrupt in the credit card space too. I think that there has been a lot of um, change in marketing and servicing models, um, but for the most part, the traditional credit card space has stayed pretty consistent. Um, so I think there's some opportunity there as well. There's some really good work by the Financial Health Network in the eight indicators of financial health. And actually that as a potential successor to the FICO score um, on um, on kind of like what we're looking for from people and, and that can be seen in their, in their data, of which one is having a prime um, credit score. But other ones are things like spend less um, uh, than income, have sufficient liquid savings, have manageable debt, um, have appropriate insurance, pay bills on time, have sufficient long-term savings and plan ahead financially. Um, and all of this comes from different data sources. And you know, if I was talking to a banker, they'd say, well, we try and get all of that in our process. But how you do that is starting to change. And having a standard that the market understands could be really, really valuable in terms of, of how we measure that. Um, so, so looking to the future, Sanket, you gave us a really interesting um, kind of perspective. Do you think uh, areas like home buying, areas like rent um, are a particular area that, that could see some innovation what are the and other other areas that you think really that there's a sore need for innovation yeah um i think um when when i wrote like the initial roadmap of synapse uh, one of the final things that we wanted to work on was uh privatized universal basic income and uh i think that is kind of like the final frontier for this which is can you build a uh pretty much the concept that we talked about. Can you build like a private placement vehicle uh, that people who are more fortunate have an incentive function to invest in, um, and then you can use that to collateralize more long-time horizon projects more than anything else? Um, so we think that's like a moonshot project. I don't I don't see that happening in like next next five years, uh, but, I, but I'd be very surprised if um, that doesn't happen over the course of next 10 years. And actually, I would say COVID might actually be an accelerant to it because one thing that COVID has been able to demonstrate is stimulus checks actually improved the economy. <laughs> um, so it's not something that was just like, it just wasn't a handout. It actually helped people and it also helped businesses. Um, so we do think like some studies are going to come out of this where you could privatize funds and portfolios that essentially give people access to long time, like long time horizon cash, but definitely a moonshot versus something that happens right away. 
it's interesting that uh, infrastructure investment is now largely understood by asset managers and, and global capital markets as a good thing. Um, you know, they're always looking for infrastructure projects because of the uh, it's illiquid and therefore has a fairly consistent yield. Actually, UBI as an investment is is not as crazy as it sounds. Like it's it's kind of um, it's it's achievable, but an, an area of real um, opportunity. I want to give a shout out to our friends over at um, Fronted. Um, so we've had them on on our fintech insider podcast and i really like what they do with renters so one of the th- problems you have in the uk is uh you have the deposit protection service so i'm going to go rent a place my deposit isn't with my landlord it's protected by a central agency run on behalf of the government now that's great but the problem is if i want to go leave the current um residence that i've got and, and rent somewhere else get another apartment I can't get at that deposit until I uh, have given, put down a deposit on a second place. And so one of the things uh, the guys at Fronted did was say, well, let's just take a data feed directly from the deposit protection service and use that as security against your next deposit and lend to you so we can lend to you at a better rate. And then as soon as the cash comes in from the deposit protection service, we just take that out. So there's all of these financial innovations that start to happen. Um, Melanie, I'm interested in your space. Obviously, the immigrant population, um, I guess it's there's so much more that we could do. What are the, what are the key challenges and, and opportunities that you see in front of you guys at Nova Credit? Yeah, absolutely. So the immigrant population today, we kind of talked about it at the beginning of the podcast, um, but they really get stuck with this catch-22 of you come to the U.S., you're going to need a lot of stuff. You're going to need a credit card. You're going to need to apply for a home um, rental application. You're going to need a postpaid phone plan. You might need a student loan. Um, And you actually might have pretty good credit history in your home country, um, but we completely forget about any of that and make you start from scratch. And often you have to do that with a secured card and it could take you years to get back, get the same products that you used to be able to access. Um, So what we've been really focused on in the short term um, is figuring out how we can take that data from your foreign country, normalize it, standardize it, make it look like a U.S. credit report so that lenders can use that same past performance data to be able to underwrite you moving forward. Um, So I think continuing to to focus there and adding additional alternative data sources are things that we're focused on a ton. Um, This is also not just a problem that exists in the U.S., um, so we want to think about international expansion beyond this, um, and even thinking about other populations uh, in addition to immigrants that are not well-served. So we're really focused on kind of the infrastructure and the data side and getting to that 360-degree view of the consumer and making that accessible to lenders. Yeah, I mean, in in banking terms, um, these customers would be a thin file. um, And simply because we can't get enough data about that customer, um, then we would reject them. And, and actually, that just makes no sense. Just go look for more data and, and maybe you can lend to them and maybe you can give them an on-ramp into credit, which potentially builds brand equity, but it's also good for society. There's functional utility and social utility. There's there's both of those things. I think it's super powerful um, that lenders would just turn somebody down because they didn't have enough data. It just seems, seems crazy. Sorry, Mel, please. No, I was just going to say, and it's it's costly for them, too, because they're spending all the money to acquire these customers. And so to just turn them down and have these big marginal uh, decline populations is, is really not in their best interest either. Tucker, um, what are your areas that you think are, are going to have the biggest need in the in the coming years and, and opportunities? Yeah, I think that, you know, everything that we've talked about here about going after niches, being able to you know expand access for them is really important. But I think one of the 
other really important factors there is also making that credit less expensive for them. You talk about fronted and being able to reduce the cost of those loans by utilizing a, an interesting collateral source. And I think that's really important to consider moving forward as well. And not how are we actually pricing this risk more accurately and then being able to give people access to less expensive credit over time. You know, we need more varied products that target specific needs or personalization of those products and a lot more leading indicators of risk that can get us there. I like that term, leading indicators of risk. Um, there's definitely um, so many things that are out there in the data that, that could show that, especially if you can start to build propensity models and, and, and other models that, that kind of show that. Sankit, um, you've, you've given us some perspectives, but what do you want the lending landscape to look like in five to 10 years? And, and what do you genuinely think is going to change trends that are already in flight? Yeah, I think the short term is uh, threefold. I think you're going to have uh, better data with that, you're going to be able to make more swifter decisions around credit than banks have been able to. So I think you're going to be able to help a lot of people get access to credit, short-term credit, but still access to credit, and then also help them uh, think of credit responsibly and then help build a credit history for them that on-ramps them into more long-term traditional credit. Uh, that seems like seems like all the factors are already in flight to be able to get us there. And I think as you're going to see that model succeed more and more, you're going to see more access to capital. So I think a lot of the capital is going to flow downstream, even from larger banks like Chase and Wells Fargo, getting invested into this model, because they would realize this actually builds a much more lucrative pipeline for them. So I think over the course of the next five years, that's a very reasonable thing to have occurred. Um, and most likely that's what's going to happen. It's interesting as uh, from a big bank's perspective, yeah, do they view fintech as, as the threat or the opportunity? And, and I think what you're saying is very much just an opportunity and it's an on-ramp to, to their balance sheet. Um, and do you see the competition between the logos on the front end or actually the balance sheet on the back end? And having a sizable balance sheet is still a superpower, even if it, it hasn't felt like one in a, in, a, in a short while. And I think that's a, a great point. Um, people want to... Big banks are used to winning in all the layers in the stack and actually being able to deploy lending via other on-ramps just makes a whole ton of sense. Um, Melanie, what are your thoughts five to 10 years out? What, what do you think of the trends and, and what do we see? Yeah, so I would echo a lot of what Sankit mentioned. I think um, the three things that I think are really important are better incentive alignment. So if you think about traditional lending models, they're not always in favor of the consumer because you have things like compounding interests and late fees. And so a lot of times the lender makes money off of the consumer's misfortune. Um, so I love to see innovative business models that actually align incentives better between the lender and the consumer. Um, I think the second piece that we haven't talked a lot about because it's a pretty big problem to solve is financial literacy. Um, so building credit is like a lot of things where you can kind of game it and it can be a learned um, activity. And so I think figuring out financial literacy, making sure that people have the information to make smart decisions as soon as they enter the workforce is really important. And then I think the third piece we've talked about a lot, which is just access. Um, and I think access feeds into better understanding of these populations, better data, um, and being able to make better decisions and more efficient decisions. Um, just before we move to Tucker, I just want to double click on the financial literacy point. It's, it's one that comes up a, a lot, um, but also how, how Melanie, how do you see the the flip between sort of education and product design? Because there's there's two schools of thought here, and they're not always the same thing. Yeah, um, so I think it 
it, it can be really tough. Um, and I think when I think about product design, I try and figure out like how you can put the consumer in the driver's seat and help them understand decisions while they're making them. Um, so early on in my career, one of the things I worked on was a personal financial management tool at American Express. And, you know, we started out and we had all of these pretty pie charts and we would show people breakdowns of their spending habits and consumers really just like didn't know what to do with the data. Um, and so I think when we think about product design, trying to figure out how to, how to give consumers breadcrumbs and give them information at the right time so that they know how to apply it and be more action oriented is, is really the secret sauce or the magic way to do it. Um, the other thing that I would add kind of on that point, um, which is sort of related, um, but another, another thing that we struggle with is the balance between friction and transparency to the consumer. Um, so we've been talking a lot about different data sources that consumers um, can benefit from being put forward towards their lending picture, but there are also sources that will make them less likely to get credit. Um, and so I think it's another big balance in product design in terms of making sure that you're not adding too much friction in front of the consumer, but you're also being really clear about what data might be used to help them make a decision and making sure that consumers understand that. I like that a lot. Sankit, you wanted to jump in briefly. Yeah, um, I think there's one instrument in lending uh, that probably is going to be super helpful in financial literacy, which is open loans. So open loan is this concept where you can have a flexible credit limit based on an underwriting criteria that the lender chooses behind the scenes. Um, so here's here's the thought process. You could start with a fully secure loan where the customer has to capital back that completely and then nudge and build habit loops along the way that build the right behavior for them. So it's less so them requiring to be uh, required, like they don't require to ingest the data, but they more so over time learn the right behaviors needed to be able to manage a unsecured line. Um, and it doesn't get in the way of the customer. They can get started very easily. And then you can slowly incrementally nudge them to a better behavior. I like that. And we are seeing some products in the market start to do exactly that um, in the near future as well. And you talked about nudges. I think this whole space of behavioral economics don't educate, but like use behavioral economics in the sense of product design, that the education is sort of happening ambiently. Like if you start a video game, a great video game is showing you buttons, but you're also doing the task at the same time. And that's the art of great, great product, I think. Um, Tucker, I wonder if you have thoughts on this or, or where, where we're looking um, in the next five to 10 years, where, where you see the greatest opportunities. Definitely. And I think, you know, for me, of course, echoing with it. Uh, all ties together. But for me, the biggest opportunity is actually in servicing. You know, we've, as we've discussed today, there's a lot of stuff happening inside of underwriting. There's a lot of stuff happening inside of risk and trying to, to change those processes. But servicing is this area that I think does not get as much love and certainly needs to, because that is really how you create that active relationship with somebody, right? There's not just this risk at the time that you originate the loan. There's risk throughout the entire period of the loan. And how you manage that is really the essence of servicing. And so I think bringing in financial literacy, bringing in habit loops, bringing in different kinds of these tools, making it very actionable, very personalized, and very engaging is really how you're going to evolution somebody from here is a very high risk person, getting those nudges throughout the way to being able to you know, get a mortgage or whatever it is that they want access to. I love that point because so often uh, an entrepreneur thinks about happy path, not on a happy path. And somebody who's 
gotten the lending might not realize that their customers are going to uh, potentially defraud them or even um, fall into collections and fall into hard times. So how do you how do you help somebody who can't pay in a in a thoughtful way, but also manage your business in in the process? I think that's a really great point. Senke, one last thing for you, and then we'll we'll close this one out. Yeah, um, there is an interesting behavioral science thought to two points that we discussed. The first one is debt to income ratio. I think that's fairly established. The the second one is inclination to pay. Uh, there are uh, um, academic thoughts that you should not be measuring inclination or uh, uh, willingness to pay, but you should be measuring engagement. Because if you measure engagement with the product, that means by definition, they'll be more likely to pay. So to Tucker's point, the more innovation happens on the servicing side, the more the customers love the product, Uh, uh, the higher the engagement is, the higher the engagement is, the higher the likelihood of them paying back versus not. That's really powerful. I'd love to see them, that stuff kicked out into the open source someday. I mean, um, it, the Competition Markets Authority in the UK just published its um, survey of, of consumers and which brands um, consumers really like in the financial services sector. And no surprise, Monzo and Starling topped that that list by a long way with um, with the traditional banks some way behind. And again, it's all service that does it. And actually, service impacts the bottom line. It's not just something that um, it is a nice to have anymore. And I think that's a great place to conclude today's episode of Under the Hood. So next week, uh, we're going to be lifting the lid on cryptocurrency and how uh, it's really beginning to uh, disrupt the world of money movement. We hope you join us for that discussion. Thank you so much to our guests uh, for joining us from this week. Where can people find out a little bit more about you? Uh, Let's start with Tucker. Yeah, you can find out more about Quo at Quo.com. You can find me on Twitter at Tucker Haas. And Mel? Um, yeah, I recommend that everyone check out NovaCredit.com, learn more about our product. And we have a referral program if you know anyone that's moving to the U.S. and you might want to help them get credit. Um, I actually don't have a big Twitter presence. I'm working on my TikTok, um, but I'll keep you guys uh, posted on that one. I, I respect that. Um, and Sanke, how about you? Uh, you can you can go to our website, synapsefi.com, uh, same handle on Twitter and LinkedIn. Um, and if you want to interact with me, uh, same S-E-N-K-E-T, so my first name on LinkedIn or Twitter as well. Fantastic. You can find me at S-Y Taylor on Twitter, Simon Taylor on LinkedIn. And uh, if you like this podcast, remember to subscribe to get all the episodes as soon as they're released and tell your friends, tell everybody you know about it, spread the word, pass the pod along. Um, and to find out more about the show, you can obviously see more on the 11FS and Synapse social platforms. We will be back next week. Thank you so much for listening and goodbye for now. Thank you.